You're listening to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast, hosted by Dr. Bill Goodnight and Dr. Chris Robinson. Each month, we take an in-depth look at a paper published in the American Journal of Perinatology. Next speaker is Sharos Rana from University of Chicago, and she's going to talk about angiogenic factors and adverse outcomes related to hypertension. Thank you, everyone, for coming. I have to apologize because I think, I don't want to say that Ravi stole some of my slides, but perhaps some of the slides are kind of repetitive, but I'll try to kind of go through the studies just so that we can understand the journey that I've been on. So I don't want to talk about preeclampsia per se, but we all know here in the audience that preeclampsia is a common hypertensive disorder of pregnancy. The hypothesis that we've been following in the lab is essentially a placental disease. So you have a diseased placenta, and I won't spend any time talking about, but obviously a lot of people are working on what causes the diseased placenta, but somehow the placental dysfunction causes the release of certain factors. And for the purpose of this talk, we'll be talking about soluble FLIT, and I don't think I have slides with soluble endoglin. I know that there are obviously other factors that people have been studying, but these factors, that get released from the placenta go to the maternal circulation and essentially they are causing a systemic endothelial dysfunction which then manifests itself in the maternal disease which we all know is hypertension. It affects the glomerular endothelium so it causes proteinuria. It can cause liver dysfunction and cerebral um, edema and dysfunction. Obviously there are lots of animal data around this. There are animal models where you can inject soluble fluid and the animal gets hypertension, proteinuria, IUGR. There is the RUP model where you could cause placental ischemia, and those animals actually then have a higher soluble FLIT. So I think when I look at this, and I know everybody has their own favorite kind of, uh, they think perhaps we could use these factors, I think there are at least three major roles, and I'm going to talk about the middle one, and Ravi alluded to that. I think we could use these factors to differentiate among women who have other overlapping symptoms. So such as patients who have chronic hypertension, there is good large studies done in which you have patients who have lupus, it was just published in AJOG a month ago, where they took patients who had lupus and throughout the pregnancy they measured the soluble fit PLGF and patients who then developed preeclampsia on top of their lupus had a higher soluble FLIT and lower PLGF. There are lots of case reports about patients who present with hypertension, proteinuria, and you're unable to differentiate whether it's a lupus nephritis versus preeclampsia. And you can actually, based on your angiogenic factors, differentiate that patient. And to me as a clinician, I think that is really important because if you have lupus, perhaps you want to give them steroids and not really rush for delivery. While if you're really thinking that perhaps this is preeclampsia, you go ahead and, you know, obviously finish your steroids and deliver the patient. So that's a different story. I'll present some data as to I really believe that measuring these in the late second or third trimester is helpful in patients to stratify the patients based on their angiogenic profile. So somehow you have this patient in second, third trimester where you're trying to figure out what is her risk. I personally believe that just diagnosing somebody with preeclampsia is good because then you can say, okay, well, you're at higher risk. But at the end of the day, we really have to move a little bit beyond preeclampsia and say, what is your actual risk to have an adverse outcome? So when we say adverse outcomes, and I again say it with a grain of salt that we don't really thankfully have many adverse outcomes in this country, but eventually as a clinician, as a provider, you are trying to avoid that eclampsia. Ultimately, you are trying to avoid that abruption that's going to happen to your patient. So not just the diagnosis of preeclampsia, we could use these biomarkers 
to stratify the risk for adverse outcomes and not just the diagnosis. And like Ravi alluded, obviously we can use angiogenic factors to base therapy so we can antagonize them but also use them as markers to include the patients and obviously follow the therapy. And I know Ravi didn't present the slides, I don't know if he won't get it, but we've been using in the lab like small molecules and natural compounds to inhibit soluble fit. So I think having a biomarker that you know is associated with the disease and then somehow trying to inhibit that may be potentially helpful. We did this study 2009 to 2012. I'm going to just walk you through. This was the original study that we published later. We kind of called it Rogue because this was soon after my fellowship. And I went to Anand's lab and Anand asked me, okay, what is the major problem when you look at these women? And I'm like, God, like I'm always in triage as a resident and I'm always trying to figure out who's the woman I can send home. So I need to find a test that perhaps I could use to stratify these patients. So we call the study rule out preeclampsia evaluation. This was done in Boston. We took every patient who came to our triage unit for evaluation of preeclampsia. So these are the women uh, who have headache, who have edema, the doctor measured the blood pressure was 140, or they have a prior history and somehow the blood pressure now is 130. We collected the samples, so every patient who comes for preeclampsia evaluation at least basically gets a CBC and a CMP just to look at their creatinine and LFTs. So we collected this sample, we put it in the lab, did not analyze them in real time. And essentially, by this time, there was some data that, and I know Ravi showed that slide, the angiogenic factors may be maximum four, five, six weeks before the clinical diagnosis, they are really abnormal. So we thought we are only going to look not for the remainder of the pregnancy, not in the first trimester trying to predict something that's going to happen weeks and weeks later, but we thought we are going to only look at outcomes that are happening in the next two weeks, but obviously we had the data, so we eventually collected all the information on the final pregnancy outcomes and the complications. What we did was we had patients who came in for all the way from 24 weeks to 37 weeks, and when we analyzed the data, obviously now it's very clear that close to term the soluble fit is rising, the PLGF is going down, so that's the normal biology. We found that patients who were between 34 and 37 weeks, the signal was not very strong. So I think a big part is this disease is always modified by a treatment, which is delivery. So if you terminate the pregnancy by delivering the patient, you never have her evolve into whatever she was going to. So we essentially analyzed our data less than 34 weeks. And what we were able to show, and this is nothing new, the patients who had normal outcomes, so these were patients who never reached the diagnosis of preeclampsia, versus these patients who eventually had a diagnosis of preeclampsia within two weeks. And these are the log ratios, so the numbers don't really mean much. But essentially, the patients who developed preeclampsia within two weeks of the triage had a higher ratio compared to patients who did not. And then what was kind of nice to know that we defined these adverse outcomes, and essentially these were outcomes such as development of help, severe hypertension, also indicated delivery. So somehow we felt like if the physicians are delivering these patients, the patients must be sick and that must be taken into account. We found that patients who had an adverse outcome had a higher soluble fit PLGF compared to patients who didn't. Obviously, it was very statistically significant, but we could actually draw a line here, and that line corresponded to a ratio of 85, which is eventually we published, and then other people validated it. And it was just not any all adverse outcomes. It was most common adverse outcomes, at least in our cohort, were abruption, abnormal LFTs, and an IUGR fetus. And when we drew the ROC curves, seems like the soluble fit PLGF ratio had a best ROC of 0.89 for the prediction of adverse outcomes. And like Ravi said, what was also kind of interesting to note that it had a negative correlation with timing of delivery. So the higher your level is, the faster you got delivered. And then when we divided the patients as high and low ratio, the patients who had a high ratio, pretty much a lot of those patients got delivered within one to two weeks of arrival in triage. That obviously led way to other studies too. This was a little bit of a wayside paper that we published 
after that in hypertension or pregnancy because I would always go and talk and people will say that won't there be preeclamptics though who never have an adverse outcomes. There are patients and I see these patients too who have hypertension and proteinuria but never develop an abruption. They will just have hypertension and proteinuria and they get delivered at term. We said sure there are actually patients who have preeclampsia who have a normal angiogenic profile. So obviously not every hypertensive proteinuric women will have a soluble fit PLGF of 85. So what we did was in our original cohort we took patients who had a confirmed diagnosis of preeclampsia and essentially divided them at patients who had a low ratio and patients who had a high ratio. And what we found, even if you had a diagnosis of preeclampsia by your traditional hypertension proteinuria, if you had a normal angiogenic profile, you had no adverse outcome. At least in this very, very, very small single center 100 patient cohort, 46 patients had low soluble fit PLGF and none of these patients actually had any of the adverse outcomes. That kind of made us a little bit more comfortable in terms of showing that regardless of your diagnosis of hypertension and what kind of hypertension you have, I think if you have a normal angiogenic profile that significantly reduces your risk to have an adverse outcomes at least within two weeks of your arrival in triage. I'm trying to put a meta-analysis together and there are actually a good number of papers, at least 20 or 22 papers that have exactly looked at this exact same concept that you're coming in in triage with some suspicion of preeclampsia. How can we stratify your risk for adverse outcomes? So this was a very elegant paper published a couple of years ago by Lucilla Chapel in England. And what they did, they took patients who came to triage with some symptom of preeclampsia. And we all recognize in developed countries that we are not having those adverse outcomes. I mean, thankfully, we're not having them. Why? Because we are actually delivering them. So she had a very nice outcome. So she looked at patients who were coming to triage, can I predict who's going to deliver within two weeks related to preeclampsia if you get enrolled preterm? She enrolled everybody else too, but then the data was divided again at less than 35 weeks and more than 35 weeks. It's kind of interesting to know they only use PLGF, so they did not use soluble fit, and it's a different platform. We use Roche. They are using Elir. And what we found, the ROC was very, very similar to what we found. So our ROC was 0.89. And for her, the PLGF, the ROC for prediction of delivery within 14 days was 0.87. And that was clearly much better than what we are using now. So we are using things such as systolic blood pressure, it was 0.67. Diastolic blood pressure 0.66, uric acid 0.68, and ALT of 0.61. So we kind of showed the same thing is that just taken even in isolation, a ratio or, for example, in this case, PLGF was a better predictor of adverse outcomes compared to individual tests that we are clinically using currently. And then one more paper, very similar, exactly the same concept. This was published by Dr. Sonia Hassan. It was done in the U.S. And what they did, they pretty much had the similar concept. They had patients who, again, came in with suspected preeclampsia in third trimester and looked at the ratio of angiogenic versus anti-angiogenic factors. And again, the ROC curve for the PLGF soluble fit ratio was 0.94. And they are looking for, again, the kind of the same concept. They're looking for patients who got delivered within two weeks among the patients who came in with suspicion of preeclampsia at less than 34 weeks. When we did our first study, one of the things that came out of it is it may actually be that it's a very, very good rule-out test in the U.S. because I'm going to show you some data. The risk of adverse outcome and the prevalence of adverse outcomes in U.S. is relatively low. So obviously the test is not going to perform in terms of that's just the way the tests perform. It's not going to perform if the prevalence is low. So I was fortunate enough actually to go to Haiti, and we did these studies over the course of uh, two years. Haiti has one of the largest incidents of uh, postpartum uh, PPCM. And initially I went there trying to think I can perhaps study PPCM, but turns out they have so much preeclampsia and eclampsia. So we ended up going there and collecting some samples on patients who came in with the disease because there's always this question in my cohort, I had no eclampsia. In Lucy LaChapel's cohort, she had 
I think one patient who had eclampsia. So we don't really see these, and there's always a question of are these biomarkers are going to perform well. So first of all, we were able to show, like we showed here, is that patients who have early onset preeclampsia less than 34 weeks have a much abnormal angiogenic profile compared to patients who have a late onset preeclampsia. And that's something like, I know it was there before we actually looked at this, but personally for me to see it in our own data was kind of interesting because patients who have term disease, and we know that patients who present at 37 weeks, 38 weeks, actually sometimes even have bigger babies and larger placentas, they just have proteinuria and hypertension. So I think preterm preeclampsia is a severe disease that presents early, and they have a very abnormal angiogenic profile compared to obviously normal, but also compared to patients who present at term. But what was kind of interesting, and I know Ravi just showed you the slide, what was a little bit more interesting in Haiti is that we were able to get some patients who had severe adverse outcomes, such as there were patients who had abruption, patients who had renal failure. Obviously, a um, lot of people believe that eclampsia is a separate disease, maybe different pathway. But what we found, at least in our cohort, that all patients who had any adverse outcomes had very, very abnormal androgenic profile. Essentially, there was no patient in that cohort that had either eclampsia or hypertension-related abruption who had a normal androgenic profile. I'm just going to take a little detour, so not just for the prediction of antepartum complications, pretty much all the literature is around, and I don't know if Arun is going to talk about postpartum hypertension, but we were kind of intrigued. I'm personally very intrigued by postpartum hypertension, because I don't know why some, and postpartum eclampsia, which none of us clinicians see here, but when I was in Haiti, I saw a lot of patients who would seize after delivery, so it fascinates me if it's a placental disease, why are they seizing after delivery? People have lots of hypotheses, I have my own, but we were kind of interested in finding out if antepartum angiogenic profile could predict postpartum hypertension. So we set up this cohort of patients who at Beth Israel, where we took about 1,000 patients who came in for a routine C-section. We collected their samples before delivery and pretty much looked at their blood pressures after delivery to see how does the angiogenic profile actually correlate with postpartum course. And it was kind of interesting to note the patients who were initially, so there's this thing called de novo postpartum hypertension. So you can have a subset of patients who were normotensive throughout pregnancy and will develop hypertension postpartum. We found the incidence in our cohort was actually not that low. It was about 9%. And what we found that among the patients who were normotensive before but became hypertensive after, they had higher levels of soluble FLET and lower levels of PLGF even before delivery. So obviously delivery modified them and nothing bad happened to them. But at least in this cohort, we found that patients who had uh, de novo postpartum hypertension had slightly abnormal androgenic profile before delivery. Obviously, this is not really new, but patients who had persistent hypertension obviously were very different from patients who became normal afterwards. So if you have preeclampsia and you have a very abnormal androgenic profile, there's a higher chance that you have a higher risk to develop postpartum hypertension. This paper just got published. We divided the patients by their quantiles of soluble fit and PLGF, and we found this kind of stepwise increase in the incidence of postpartum hypertension with increasing levels of soluble fit and PLGF ratio. And this is not my data, obviously, but I wanted to bring this up. This was just published last month, published by Stefan and group in, in Europe. And essentially what they did was a simple concept in which they're trying to say, if a woman comes in with suspected preeclampsia, can I really rule out the diagnosis of preeclampsia or related adverse outcomes within one week of her arrival. So these are the graphs that I borrowed from Stefan. There were about 1,035 women, and they divided their cohort into, they developed a cutoff. And before uh, this study, I think, you know, Stefan has been writing, and he thinks that a lot of people think maybe you can use two cutoffs, one, a very low cutoff to rule out people and perhaps a higher cutoff to rule in people. But they uh, developed their own cutoff based on this data. It was 38 
and they validated that into a separate set of cohort to rule out preeclampsia. And essentially what they found was that within one week, they had a negative predictive value of 99.3. So essentially, if you came in to triage and you had a soluble flip PLGF ratio of less than 38, the diagnosis of preeclampsia in the coming week is highly unlikely. And then they also had uh, lots of graphs and obviously ROC curves. This was a very high-impact journal, but I just pulled out one of those. This was a pretty similar to what we found, is that if you combine blood pressure and proteinuria and combine the ratio, you have a pretty decent ROC curve. And I'm not going to show you that, but they did have relatively poor positive predictive values of 30%, 40%. And that is kind of just the way it is. They had, I think, only two patients in this entire cohort of 1,000 patients who had eclampsia. So just to kind of wrap up the story, we recently did this study in which I was always intrigued by, we've always been measuring the soluble fit one time. So I would always ask this question, if the person comes in, we're measuring her blood pressure at least you know, hundreds of times while she's in the hospital. We're checking a CBC every day. We're checking a uric acid every day. I mean, they may or may not be helpful, but we are doing it regardless. So I was always intrigued by the fact, what if I measure a soluble fit every day? I mean, does it matter what it is? day one versus day two. So we set up this cohort at, again in Boston with my fellow, and we took 100 patients who came in and got admitted with either any kind of diagnosis of hypertension. So they were admitted for either evaluation, suspicion, or confirmed diagnosis of preeclampsia. And essentially what we did, we collected their blood for the first three days every day, and then weekly till they delivered. And what we found was, and there was one prior study actually done by Stefan Group in which they had about like 13 or 14 patients in which they sequentially measured it. What we were able to show that patients who had, again, we kind of divided them not just by the diagnosis because I'm a little bit myself not a big fan of the diagnosis of preeclampsia. It can only get me that far. So we divided them based on their adverse outcomes. And what we were able to show that patients who have an adverse outcome have a higher increase in absolute levels of soluble fluid every day. So like Ravi was showing, they're actually accumulating soluble fluid every day and it hits a certain level. And then obviously the clinical symptoms must be bad and the patient gets delivered. And then we calculated these absolute changes and percentage changes in the soluble fit PLGF ratio. It was very highly significant in terms of the absolute change that was happening in the ratio every day. And what we were able to, again, I know Ravi showed you this graph and it was kind of interesting to note. So we divided the patients who had high ratio, so the red ones and the low ratio, which are the green ones. And we just plotted them out. How far do you remain pregnant if you have a higher ratio? And what turns out, if you have a high ratio, if you come in high and you keep going up, you get delivered very, very fast. If you come in low and you stay low, you don't get delivered for many, many days. So there was a difference between six days and obviously very, very small sample and 14 days. But still, I think whatever therapy we are talking about, I think that's why biomarkers are important because you can take these patients essentially and you know they're going to be delivered within the first three or four days and somehow push them so that they can be here. So this is my last slide, future studies. I know it's going to take a lot of money and obviously a lot of muster, but I think we really need to. I know there's lots of data. There's hundreds of articles about angiogenic factors. I think we really need to prove to ourselves that perhaps use of these factors will actually improve clinical outcomes. So at the end of the day, I really personally believe that we need to help the patients. And I don't think we have that data. I think we have data that's associated with the disease, perhaps associated with adverse outcomes, but I'm not really clear whether there is data that we can actually use of these factors will improve clinical outcomes. So perhaps reduce hospitalization, perhaps reduce intervention, perhaps send the patients home so maybe they feel better about themselves, something, maybe you know better economic analysis. But obviously we do not have this. If somehow using these in real time 
will actually improve outcomes. Obviously, it's important to have the biomarkers because like Ravi was saying, we can actually develop therapies against it, antagonize it or remove it or increase the PLGF. I think it's a good thing to have soluble fit, at least when I look at my lab and I'm running assays to see if I can somehow find a compound that can reduce it. It can act as a surrogate. It's very nice. So you don't have to you know, have this kind of non-specific blood pressure, but you can have a very specific therapy targeted against a particular molecule and measure that particular molecule. And personally, I really feel that these tests can be used in resource-poor countries. So I'm actually hopefully going to start some studies in Haiti where I really feel that in patients, you can really rule them in where they can actually go to a hospital and they can be delivered there. So there's obviously lots of data that if you seize at home, there's a higher chances you'll die compared to even if you had a seizure, but if you seize in the hospital, your mortality and morbidity is relatively low. So I definitely want to end with acknowledging, obviously, Dr. Karamanchi. Uh, he's been a great mentor through the years, Dr. Thadani and Dr. Linheimer. Thank you. <laughs> Dr. Sabai, Sarosh, you're not supposed to ask difficult questions. Uh, Sarosh, I love you there, you know. We are in 2016. We're really getting tired. Doing more observational studies. I know. Most, you know, we owe it to pregnant women. Let me say it clearly. We cannot keep on going all of this which we don't know whether the test is useful or dangerous. How many times we have been through this? Why don't the companies who want to I promote know. it put the damn money and do the right test and say whether it works or not? Now, let me comment about New England Journal. Actually, I wrote a letter to the editor. This is a disgrace. Even the editors of the journal don't know anything about obstetrics. Both of them are internists who wrote the editorial. Do you know that this is what's the problem? You take women who are normal, all right? You do a test, and they say, we can predict the patient will be normal 99%. What was the rate of preeclampsia within one week of the study? Do you know that? What was it? I don't know. I have to look it up. I can tell you. What was it? 6%? Two point, no, 2.7. Sure. So without doing the test, the negative predictive value is 97.3%. Can you tell me why in the world anybody wants to spend money to say, I can tell you 99%, but without doing the test, I can tell you the patient will not have preeclampsia within one week, 97.3%. We should become responsible and start the stances. I agree, but I think when you look at it in reality, and that's why I think we need data, and I know that they have the data, hopefully they'll publish it. I personally feel that if you see a patient in triage who has a blood pressure of 140, I can tell you for a fact, me as a clinician, I'm not going to just send her home and not see her. I mean, you probably will do an NST. You probably will call her in two to three days to check her blood pressure. So that's what I'm saying. Maybe you're absolutely right. Maybe it is that the incidence of preeclampsia is really, really low, at least in our cohort, about 40% of the patients had an adverse outcome. So because maybe we were looking at adverse outcomes and we had a higher uh, maybe cutoff, but at least in our cohort, when we looked at our patients, about 40% of the patients had some sort of an adverse outcome. Either they had abnormal LFTs or they had severe hypertension. So I do agree in this particular study, and I was kind of surprised as well, and that's why the editorial says that there has to be a real study. And absolutely, if I can find somebody who can fund it, I think that's what we need you to know, do. I'm starting to worry. There is a conflict of interest. People are promoting things for financial reasons. I, we need to put an end to this. Now, let's go to your study. In your study, when we talk about adverse outcome, you had 10 women, but it's hidden in the appendix, who had adverse outcome, and your test was normal. Now, and you say there, well, mm -hmm. they didn't have preeclampsia. 
If I am a woman, you are telling me a test. Do I care if I'm going to have a rupture or I'm going to have a baby who will die? And you are doing a test. Whether the test has to do with preeclampsia or not. I agree, but again, I mean, you think that with your blood pressure, you can tell a woman you're not going to have an abruption. That's the whole story. I mean, I think that just taking the biomarkers just by themselves, obviously the clinicians are also going to use their routine test. All I'm saying is that it adds to your blood pressure. So I cannot imagine as a clinician looking at a patient's blood pressure of 130 and telling her you're never going to have an abruption. There is no test that can do that. Yeah, because see, abruption you, comes from five yeah, different things. Yeah, but you're things. talking about adverse outcome. Yes. Adverse outcome is baby dying, two women with health syndrome, three women having severe hypertension. Okay, one baby dying, two patients having abruption. So the baby so, who died had a P-PROM from 22 weeks and so, died at 26 weeks. I could tell her yeah, that but you her... See, what is the test? Oh. Adverse outcome means you have adverse outcome for the woman yes, and but, her baby. I don't you, understand this logic. So no, but if the baby I, I, dies from something else, it's okay? No. All I'm saying is how in the world can you predict Doc? it? It's okay. better predictor than your blood pressure. That's all I'm saying. I mean, you can never predict 100% of IUFD with what you're doing today. This you is can't. like the Iowa caucus. Yeah. We can line up on either side of the room. But in the interest of time, we have two more questions coming. So, Hi. I'm just going to speak on behalf of the UK team. Lucy Chappell and I and several other collaborators in the UK are about to do the study yep. that needs to be done looking at whether you reveal the test results or you conceal the test exactly. results. Exactly. I know that's going on. Yes. Thank you for so doing it. We're about to start recruiting in a couple of months following on from... Great. Thank you. Can I just, the other thing I was just going to say is that we've just finished a clinical evaluation of using the ALEA test, which I appreciate only measures PLGF, in a cohort of women with mixed symptoms. So women who have, generally speaking, got chronic hypertension and sure. chronic proteinuria. And there is no doubt that abnormal angiogenic factors diagnostic of a placental component of their disease. But if you are brave, stroke stupid, and you sit on them for long enough, mm -hmm. um, you can get some of these pregnancies six, seven, eight weeks out with very abnormal angiogenic profiles, with very careful monitoring. So I'm still a little nervous that these factors, are they're undoubtedly diagnostic that there's something wrong with the placenta, but whether they're going to help us with the adverse outcomes, I think I agree. there's still so a way to go on that. Absolutely. And I think that's where I kind of struggle myself too, because I feel like PLGF goes low many, many weeks before. So it's not really temporal. I really do believe, at least based on our data, that soluble fit is a little bit temporal to the outcome. Actually, you know, we are doing a study in India where I'm going to take a cohort of women and I want to see how far you can go by careful monitoring because in developing countries you can't really deliver people at 28 weeks the baby's going to die so I think you can bring in some cohort of patients that you think is at higher risk and then perhaps prevent that IUFD by just careful monitoring that we typically do here yeah so Rosha congratulations you are now a Baja survivor <laughs> Dr. Martin, I like literally grew up reading his books, so I'm fine. <laughs> um, I want to ask you a non-controversial question. We all know that there's a sort of a honeymoon effect when we treat somebody at, say, 32 weeks with preeclampsia that may or may not have severe features, and they look good for maybe 24, 36 hours, and then they deteriorate thereafter. And they usually get antenatal corticosteroids for fetal lung maturation. Do you have any information to say that that effect is mitigated through or moderated through SFLT PLGF changes? 
during that time? So very good question. And you know, we exactly found that. So there are other graphs in that which I didn't show you. So the soluble fat actually is quite interestingly went down on every patient at 24 to 48 hours and then went back up at 72 hours and they got delivered. And I think that was the steroids because we went back and looked at the charts. So we had that when they came in and then it will be high and then it'll go down like 20, 30% and then go back up again. And we gave them MAG too, so I don't know whether it was the effect of MAG versus steroids, but we did a study looking at MAG and specifically MAG and angiogenic factors and there was no difference. So my hunch is it was the steroids. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. That was the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Thank you for listening. To find out more and to read this month's highlighted paper, go to www.tima.com forward slash AJP, or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com AMJ Perinatology. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes and join us next month when we will discuss another paper from the pages of the American Journal of Perinatology.